If Trump flames out after one term, Republicans will imitate him exactly as much as Democrats imitated Jimmy Carter, in the sense that they will have seen that as a failed model. Most people don't look at a presidential election that ends up with one term and then the other party sweeping back into power as necessarily a great model. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can be to for a time populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. In place of my usual little spiel about the work that I do at the beginning of this podcast, I'm afraid to say that today I'll have to do some self-promotion, and I promise it'll be the last time for a little while. My book, The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It, is now finally out. It's the third book I've written, and honestly, it's the first one that I'm really, really keen to get into people's hands, because um, whether you end up agreeing with it or not, I do think it grapples in a serious way with some of the most pressing things we have to figure out with some of the themes that I explore on this podcast. So if you enjoy listening to these conversations, I'm pretty sure, I hope that you will enjoy thinking through some of the ideas that I lay out in this book. So please, please, please spread the word about it, consider buying it and reading it. If uh, you're not convinced, here's one quote from Rice. If you're worried about the world becoming less and less stable for each passing month, about democracies around the world coming under assault from strongmen and would-be strongmen, about societies succumbing to its worst impulses, do not read the new book from political scientist Yasha Monk, The People vs. Democracy. It will scare the hell out of you. Well, that's not an endorsement. I don't know what is. But now I'm really excited to have with me for this conversation David French. David French is probably the most conservative thinker that I've had on the podcast so far. He's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute and writes a lot for the National Review itself. He's a staff writer there. He's also a past president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. I've gotten to know David a little bit over the past year, and he's truly one of the most decent people I know who's being attacked and vilified in really nasty ways uh, by the Trumpist right. And I think that, if anything, encapsulate the coalition of all democratic forces of all the decent people who have deep disagreements, as you'll see, of ideology and uh, worldview, but who can actually come together to defend some of our basic institutions, then that's hopefully people like David and I. And we explore some of our similarities and some of our differences uh, in a really wide-ranging, fun conversation over the next 40, 45 minutes or so. Um, I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. So listen, you are a proud member of a conservative movement. You're a writer for National Review. And you saw over the course of the primaries, a lot of people with whom you thought you agreed on a lot of important political matters, supporting a candidate who you strongly, strongly dislike, with whom you strongly disagree. You know, I mean, I think there's a set of questions there about how that made you feel and so on. But we, I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to get too soppy too early in this, in this conversation. And one of the things that I'm wondering about is sort of, what did that reveal to you about the differences you have of people where you you might have thought you had similarities? Were you always mm -hmm. aware of those differences and they just sort of played out in that political situation? Well, you know, in any movement, you're aware that there's a range of people with a range of different levels of individual character. So that aspect of it, 
shouldn't surprise anybody if people reveal different kinds of character under stress. I think the thing that surprised me was the extent to which many elements of the conservative movement revealed themselves to be not as interested in conservatism as I thought they were. So during the Obama administration, the way and the path to sort of conservative celebrity, the path to become the face of opposition to Obama was sort of the path through true conservatism. So, you know, uncompromising on tax raises. And yeah. So if you're compromising, you're a rhino. If you're a deficit hawk, you're a conservative. If you're, um, you know, you could just go down the line of the list. And the question was, are you a true conservative? So you had all of these sort of what you would call rhino hunters or rhino police like a Sean Hannity and others who were saying, well, I don't like this guy because he's not conservative enough. And what I began to realize is for an awful lot of people, conservative didn't mean conservative so much as it meant opposed to Obama. So the more conservative you were, the more opposed to Obama you were. Quote, the less conservative you were, the less opposed to Obama you were. Well, then along comes Donald Trump, who's opposed to Obama, but who knows what he believes? And so I can remember in the you know, 2012 election cycle, this in, enormous interest in you know, what Mitt Romney had said six or seven years ago and whether that would betray that he was not as conservative as he's making himself out to be now. And, and with Donald Trump, it didn't matter what he had said yesterday. Six minutes ago. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you began to realize, and this was an eye-opener for an awful lot of people, that the Republican base was not as conservative as we thought. And it was suffering from negative polarization in the sense that it was Republican, less because of Republican ideas and more out of opposition to the Democrats. And, you know, polling now demonstrates pretty clearly that that's a bipartisan issue. Democrats are Democrats less because they support Democratic ideas and more out of opposition to Republicans. And it's the same way on the other side. And that came through in that election in a very obvious way. Because if you look at Hillary and Trump, both of them had been on every side of most issues. They really had. I mean, Hillary had been consistent on abortion and Trump had been on every side of every issue, including abortion. And yet it was one of the most bitter elections we've seen in a generation, at least, or more. So why do you think that the staying power of those conservative ideas was so low? Do you think that this is a universal phenomenon, that any political movement, when tempted by power and, and its broad coalition, will end up deferring to whoever is elected president? Or do you think that there is something about the brittleness of the hold that a certain kind of conservative idea had over the base that made the Republican Party ripe for plucking? In that yeah. Kind of way? yeah, that's a good question. So I think there's a historical pattern of people who are willing to sort of set, lay ideology aside to win. You know, one of the big appeals of Bill Clinton in 1992 was he was a new Democrat. He was more of a centrist Democrat. The more progressive types like a Walter Mondale had been the path to defeat. Bill Clinton was, you know, the Democratic Leadership Council. That was a new, less partisan, less progressive brand of the Democratic Party and driven in large part by the desire to stop losing. I think what happened with Trump is it wasn't so much that people embraced his populism so much as they just wanted to win. The Republican voter did not wrap both arms around him in the primaries. He won going away, but he still won the lowest percentage of the primary vote of any GOP nominee in the primary era. 
So it's just that everyone else split the majority and he had a strong plurality. So he was in many ways one of the least popular GOP nominees within the GOP. But then once he got the nomination, people just flat out didn't want to lose again. And they especially didn't want to lose to Hillary Clinton. So he was able to consolidate that base really darn fast. Right now, from my perspective, it looks as though Donald Trump has at least consolidated his hold over the Congressional Republican Party. You know, there's two ways of reading that. The first is that what we want is to win. Mm -hmm. And now that there is a Republican president, they're going to go along with him pretty much whatever he does. But you know what? If he loses his in 2020, they're all going to flip back to reveal the true preferences, which were the mm-hmm. conservative preferences of the orthodoxy that held until two years ago. And Trump would potentially end up being a very bad episode, sort of nightmare, and you go mm-hmm. back to an older version right. of the party. I mean, the other version of it is that even if Trump does lose his in 2020, they have now recognized that, you know what, actually talking to middle America about tax cuts and so on. You know, that works. I mean, they sort of like it. But what really works is racist dog whistles. What really works <laughs> is undermining not just yeah. the New York Times and CNN, but also the FBI and whatever other state institutions. So let's stick with that. And let's put a more uh, attractive face on that, perhaps than Donald Trump. So I guess my question is, you know, how much hope do you have that the Republican Party can be recaptured by those more traditional conservative ideas? Uh, ask me in a year. <laughs> I think a lot. I will. Yeah, okay. we'll have you back on. <laughs> I think a lot depends on what happens in the midterms. Well, let me put it this way. So when Trump came into office, I think if you could categorize concerns, there would be three big ones. Trump's character, Trump's personnel, and Trump's policies. So Trump's character is Trump's character. Trump's personnel when he came in was featuring Steve Bannon and Michael Flynn. That was not a recipe for working with congressional Republicans. And Trump's policies were, you know, he had just come from a a campaign where he talked about NATO being obsolete, where he talked about trade wars, where he talked about a lot of things that are not traditional Republican uh, values and policy values. And so what's happened over the course of the ensuing year, year is Trump's characters remain the same. Trump's personnel has gotten better and Trump's policies have defaulted to sort of the Republican norm. So if you listen to his State of the Union, it sounded a lot like kind of George Bush with a Trumpian flourish. Hmm. So Bush had no child left behind and he had Medicare expansion. Trump's proposing immigration compromise and paid leave. So sort of big government conservatism an infrastructure bill, big government conservatism, but still good judges, strong national defense. That sounds an awful lot like Bush policies, although he's nothing like Bush the person. So I think because his position on policies has kind of defaulted to the McConnell-Ryan camp, it's warmed relations. But you raise a great but, point. But isn't the question that, that actually tone is more important than policy, right? That what people were attracted to with Trump yeah. was much more his tone than totally. his policies. And so, you know, perhaps you now have a weird new amalgam where for the next 10 years, Republicans are going to run on the same policies that actually never had that big support mm-hmm. in, in the mass of the population. But they're now going to put a Trumpian tone on it. I think if Trump is reelected, and ends two terms relatively popular, I could imagine that being a future. If Trump flames out after one term, Republicans will imitate him exactly as much as Democrats imitated Jimmy Carter. 
<laughs> in the sense that they will have seen that as a failed model. Most people don't look at a presidential election that ends up with one term and then the other party sweeping back into power as necessarily a great model. But what you have to also realize, though, is Trump didn't come out of nowhere. There were kind of proto-Trumps. Right, of course. So, you know, Newt Gingrich, when his star hit its height in the 2012 cycle is when he went hard after the media. He didn't do it as bluntly and as threateningly and sort of in the same bullying fashion that Trump does. But he went hard after the media in these South Carolina debates in 2012. And that's when he you know, had this sort of flash in the pan type moment. There's always, and there's a deep sense of resentment towards the mainstream media and the conservative movement. There's always hay to be made going in that direction. That's not to say there aren't legitimate reasons to critique the media. That's just been a, a background part of Republican politics for a long time. I think what is different of tr about Trump in kind, it's one thing to go after the media hard and fair. It's another thing to go after the media and be so deeply personal, to be so personally vicious, and to be so bluntly bullying. That's a right. very big So he difference. radicalized the critique both by making it much more personal, right, by pointing at reporters in the room and essentially threatening them and inciting his supporters to intimidate them, and by broadening it, right, because it's no longer just the media, it's also the FBI, it's also the Department of Justice, mm -hmm. it's also all of these other kinds of institutions. It's also the courts. There are legitimate criticisms of the FBI and the courts. Now, Donald Trump is not familiar <laughs> with, okay, so for example, I have a criticism of the Comey press conference and the Comey statement clearing Hillary Clinton. And my criticism is very, very specific. He invented a legal standard to do so. I think that's a problem. What about the other way around when he sent the letter to Congress on the Friday before the election, which arguably cost of the election? So I think that there was legitimate reasons for left and right, right to right. criticize Comey pre-election. So it's not that, I don't want to get into a position where we say any criticism of the FBI is undermining institutional law enforcement. No, it's an imperfect institution. Sometimes it deserves criticism. The problem I have is when criticism becomes conspiratorial and when criticism is unmoored from fact. And so, you know, if you were to ask Donald Trump, hey, Mr. President, what was your problem with the FBI in the election? The odds are low, he would say, I think Comey applied the wrong legal standard under the Espionage Act to clear Hillary Clinton. You know, it might be much more, well, they, it was on her side, or they're trying to get me, or, you know, they're trying to undo the results of election. And that kind of blunt, criticism, which often rests on conspiratorial thinking, I think is a problem. Now on the judges, I think there have been some really poorly reasoned decisions against some Trump administration policies coming from the federal judiciary. And the criticism of that is those are poorly reasoned decisions and here's why. Um, and would the travel ban be an example of that or which, which, which decisions are you thinking of? That? Yeah. So for example, on the travel ban, what you had to obtain some of those injunctions were some real expansions of standing law. So for example, granting a state standing to sue on behalf of Iraqis. <laughs> it's novel. It's novel. The establishment clause argument is a interesting stretch. And it was very interesting to me that the Supreme Court specifically asked in its cert grant on the travel ban case, specifically asked to have the establishment clause issue, which is the establishment clause issue for those who don't know it shorthand is, did Trump's travel ban violate the establishment clause by disfavoring the Islamic religion 
And so the Supreme Court asked for a specific briefing on that. But that's a big time extension. That's a big time extension of the law to take campaign statements or tweets and apply them to the meaning of a written document that on its face has no religious component. I want to change tack a little bit and think about the ways in which this political moment might actually change our view of each other. Mm, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly for me, it's been a moment where I look at both with horror at the number of people who have not stood up to Trump, mm -hmm. but also with great admiration at the people who have stood up to Trump in situations in which that was personally difficult. Right. And I know that you have taken and drawn a lot of hatred and a lot of vicious personal attacks and personal attacks, not just on you, but also your family mm -hmm. for being as, as forthright as you are about Donald Trump. Rather than delve into that, I want to know, even now, where do you feel like the left or the center-left or, or centrists are being unfair in the understanding, the reading of good faith conservatives? In what ways do you feel that you still hold positions right. that you hold in good faith because you are convinced of them and the way that they are portrayed right. ends up being just deeply unfair to mm -hmm. why does you hold them and what it is you right. So, you know, that boy, this is this is a good topic. And this is one that is the subject of many, many Twitter wars. <laughs> <laughs> so I was against Trump because I thought by his character, he was unfit. I just think he's un uh, unfit by character and temperament. And I believe that he was a serious policy risk that when he talked about NATO being obsolete, uh, when he talked about potential war crime, you know, ordering war crime, you know, all of I mean, we don't need to go to the whole list, but the combination of character and temperament to me said, I think he's unfit, but I would still want the policies that I want. So if Trump comes in and he says, I'm for higher taxes and I'm an out of control tweeter, I would say, stop out of control tweeting and stop being for higher taxes. If he comes in and he says, I'm an, and is still an out of control tweeter as he is, but he proposes a tax plan that I can support, I'm going to say, I support that tax plan. Stop being an out of control tweeter. What a lot of people come then come at me is, well, that's not real resistance. Hmm. They would say he is a singular threat to the American Republic and he has to comprehensively fail at every turn. Otherwise, you know, we'll, we might get more of him. We, you know, many people have heard all these arguments. And, and my point of view is there's nothing about the existence of Donald Trump as president that makes me less likely to support lower taxes or less likely to support originalist judges. But at the same time, the fact that I might be glad that he's appointed some good judges or that he signed what I think is a, you know, decent tax bill or that he's done well so far against ISIS, none of that means that I no longer think the character of the president matters. So my problem on the right is a lot of people on the right are saying, look at these good policies. I can handle bad tweeting if we get these good policies. But that's not what the right's argued about the presidency for my entire adult lifetime. The right has argued about the presidency that the presidency is a cultural force and a political force. And in some ways, it might be a more important cultural force than it is political force. So then you just can't say now, because the guy's a cultural train wreck, <laughs> that all that matters is politics. And you've seen really striking findings and opinion polls on this, right? Where yeah. two or three years ago, Republicans and especially evangelicals, evangelicals believed that it was incredibly important for the president to be a morally upstanding person, right? And now suddenly it's Democrats who think it's important and Republicans say it's not important. Right. Oh, and now evangelicals, this is... <laughs> 
are the, and, and I'm an evangelical, although my, my religious beliefs have not changed. I'm beginning to dislike the term evangelical, but, but I'm an, for, you know, for practical purposes, I'm an evangelical. Now evangelicals are least likely to say that the character of the president matters, going from most likely to least likely. Also consider this. So 1998, Bill Clinton is under fire for impeachment. The country's economy is roaring. The nation is at peace. Uh, he's actually signed legislation that a lot of Republicans like. They wanted him gone anyway. Why? Because the character of the president matters. In 1998, the Southern Baptist Convention wrote a very powerful document about the importance of character in public officials. And you go back and you read that now and you compare it with this enormous groundswell of support for Donald Trump in spite of all of these character problems. You're just thinking, what is going on? But then you know what is going on. It's negative polarization. Yeah, so this is a question I've had in my mind, right? And there's a version of that that we covered about the Republican Party, which mm -hmm. is, you know, was the Republican Party really all along a rather different beast from what it seemed? It was always less interested in policy and more interested in whether it's negative polarization or whether it's perhaps even a form of white identity politics and mm -hmm. parts and so on. In a way, I have the same question that we already covered about the Republican Party mm -hmm. about the evangelical movement, mm -hmm. which is to say that the developments of the last year or two really make me rethink whether the Republican Party ultimately is interested in public policy, whether it's always been a form of identity politics, a form of negative partisanship. Now, you might have the same question about evangelicals. When you read back the document from the late 1990s, right. the question becomes, well, did they actually really believe in the importance of moral leadership then? And you know, somehow that belief has dissipated over the course of mm -hmm. 20 years? Or do they never believe in it? and evangelicals were less religious and less led by cultural values than they were by, you know, a vehicle or form for encapsulating a group belonging, yeah. right? It is a group of mostly white men, not white men, of mostly white people, often mm -hmm. in the American South, and sort of evangelical institutions gave them a form of organization, a form of self-expression. But it was actually... The religion wasn't the, the horse driving the cart, it was the other way around. So let's break this down into two categories. One is there have always been in the evangelical movement a certain percentage of people, particularly in the upper echelons, who are, for lack of a better term, are opportunistic throne sniffers. And so they're going to do what they need to do in the moment to make themselves relevant. It's a small group. It's very small, but they're there. Let's just put them to the side. Yeah, yeah. And instead, let's talk about the bulk of the movement. In that sense, I would say that late 1990s statements were extremely sincere and extremely heartfelt. They were untested. Hmm. So it is very easy to adopt a moral position that does not entail sacrifice. It is very difficult to adopt a moral position that entails sacrifice. So there was no downside for Republican evangelical to say, man, Democratic president and Democrats, we need you to uphold standards of character and get rid of one of your own, to help us get rid of one of your own. That's an easy call to make. It is a very difficult call to say, let's apply all of the arguments we did in the 1990s to reject somebody who in rejecting them, it may result in a political defeat that we believe would have real consequences for our religious liberty. That's a heavy lift. So what you had was a fear-based turn. One of the most impactful articles that I saw 
there's a couple. One is well known and it resonated inside and outside religious conservative circles as the Flight 93 election. The country's at stake. Yeah. And then there was another one that was... Oh, I was, by the way, very proud to be named by Michael Anton, who is the person you? who uh, turned out to have written this, this article, mm -hmm. which was penned under pseudonym, but, but it was Michael Anton, to be named by him as one of his intellectual enemies or adversaries in the inaugural issue of uh, the Journal of American Affairs. Oh, is that right? Um, he now has a senior job, still has, I believe, in, in the White House on right. uh, national security. And the argument of Flight 93 was that this is the last moment to... Yep save a country yeah. and that it might go wrong, but Trump is not exactly somebody trained to be a pilot, but better put him in charge than know right. that you're going to die. Right. That has very clear racial connotations, right? I mean, especially in that piece, it sounded to me... Not like with evangelicals. Well, maybe in that piece. I, you know, it's been a while since I read the piece, but the, the evangelical side of it had zero to do with race, in my experience. And I've been in the right, evangelical right. movement. It had so much to do with religious liberty, with abortion and with judges. So you are constantly being told, vote in self-defense. Because the serious view was, not without foundation, not without foundation, that if Hillary Clinton wins, there's gonna be a move against the tax exemptions of religious colleges, there's gonna be a move against the tax exemptions of religious schools, possibly even churches. So you're talking about messing at a very fundamental level with how people educate their children, um, how they worship, and so that was absolutely front of mind. So, so let's dig into the details here a little bit, right? Look, as somebody who grew up, you know, as a typical European Jew, which is to say as a deeply non-religious one, you know, in a society that's deeply secular, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, as Jürgen Habermas once said, religiously unmusical, right? Mm -hmm. I don't understand religion. Right. I haven't had much of it in my life. I yeah. don't uh, know many people who are religious, right? And that actually makes me very aware of the need to think very carefully about mm -hmm. how we facilitate the rules and the norms in which religious people and non-religious people can live peacefully together mm -hmm. and both feel affirmed as members of the same polity. Mm -hmm. Because there are parts of a country and people in America who are deeply secular and there's parts of a country and people who are deeply religious. Mm -hmm. And unless we're serious-minded about bridging that divide, mm -hmm. we're not going to have social peace. Right. And so I want to touch on a couple of those issues to figure out what that might look like and, mm -hmm. and where compromises from more secular people might have to come. But do you really think that that was a serious threat of Hillary Clinton defunding churches? I mean, not well, defunding, no, I, but taking away the charitable status of churches? That seems to me, I mean, even the, the idea that she would make it impossible for religious schools, religious universities to be tax exempt seems unlikely to me. But, but, but that yeah. surely but so sounds to me like a form of fear mongering. Well, nobody runs on the platform of saying, and nobody has run on the platform of saying, I'm going to take away tax exemptions of religious schools. What they will say is, I'm opposed to discrimination in all its forms. And those religious schools that discriminate with a very broad definition of it, you know, will lose tax exemption. And where this comes from and where that fear, and I, what, the reason I brought this up specifically, was in the Obergefell oral argument. I forget which justice it is. It specifically asked the Solicitor General whether if same-sex marriage was constitutionalized, in other words, legalized under the Constitution, whether that could place in jeopardy tax exemptions of religious schools in the same way that a religious school that discriminates on the basis of race can't enjoy a tax exemption. And the Solicitor General essentially said it's an open question, which caused uh, millions of jaws to drop around the country. So that's one example. So I've stated the fear. Let me state the problem with it. 
So, so this would be religious schools that expel students for being openly gay, for example. Or have or, codes of conduct that prohibit. So I went to a religious school. Our code of conduct pre- prohibited all sex outside of marriage, and marriage is the union of a man and woman. I see. So if you have sex with your girlfriend and you're a guy, you're out. If you have, if you're a guy and you have sex with another guy, you're well, maybe not out, but disciplined or punished or whatever. So that's that's one side of it. So there were two problems. There were two problems with this apocalyptic view. One was secular, one was religious. Here's the secular problem. It was overblown. Now, there are legit, legit religious liberty issues, but the core of our religious liberty is protected by 9-0 or 7-2 Supreme Court majorities. They're not hanging by a thread, the core. So that was just not true. And it's also not true that whoever won the the 2016 election was going to determine whether Roe v. Wade was still law or not. Right. So that was not true. Then here's the religious problem. I'm going to get theological on you. Please. For a yeah. So scripture is pretty clear that even in dire times, one does not ally with evil. One relies on God. So there's an example from the Old Testament. Hezekiah is king of Judah and the Assyrian army is threatening and this is the real deal. I mean, this is an army coming to wipe out your city. And the prophet Isaiah says, don't go down to Egypt. Don't make an alliance with Egypt. Rely on the Lord, your God, to save you. I'm paraphrasing all kinds of scriptures. but <laughs> That's between you and Jamaica. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so in essence, the, the thing was, don't seek that alliance of convenience. Right, right. God takes care of his people. So that was an argument I was making to uh, folks in the church. It's like, come on, this is this is in some ways a test of faith. It's a test of faith. You have legitimate concerns. I think they're overblown, but there's a legitimate nugget in there that's important. I'm not minimizing it. Heck, I've done religious liberty litigation my whole adult life. I would never minimize religious liberty. There is a real concern, but the question is, who do you ally with? Who do you ultimately depend on to protect the church? And so that's what I mean when I say a view of the importance of the character of a politician was sincere, but untested. In this circumstance, it was put to a test. And, put to a test. Test. And, and in my view, the decision to, and that, now I did not vote for Hillary. I believe Hillary was unfit in a different way than Trump, but it's not just holding your nose and voting for one over the other. I get it. It's the defense of what you would not defend and the rationalization of what you would not rationalize, just to be precise. It's not the vote itself. It is defending what you would never defend in a Democrat, rationalizing what you would never rationalize in a Democrat. Like, you know, I don't know, to pick one example, paying hush money to a porn star. That doesn't seem to be a very big issue, does it? Um, (laughs) No, it's not. It is remarkable that within a week of that, I mean, within a week of that, within a day of that, Mm -hmm. it was forgotten. I mean, you know, it's something that now sort of comes up precisely in these kinds of contexts, right? But but we never treated that as an actual scandal. I mean, can you remember a president in the history of the United States, including Bill Clinton or anybody else, for whom that wouldn't have become the defining scandal of a presidency? I mean, it is insane. Oh, it, it, you know, I, I was only slightly exaggerating when all it first hit the Wall Street Journal. I think I tweeted something like, this might be the only the seventh most controversial Trump controversy of the week. Yeah. You know? No, it's mind blowing. You know, when you're in the moment of the news cycle and you're like, oh, here comes another revel, you know, it's easy to not step back and take a larger look and go, 
holy cow, there's just compelling evidence that the president of the United States, a year after he was married, had an affair with a porn star and then paid her off in the weeks before the election to guarantee her silence. What? Yeah. The, um, the tweet that still sticks with me in my mind came, I believe, actually, after Antonin Scalia died. So, you know, 20 years ago in political time. And somebody tweeted, it's like it's the last season of America and all the writers are going wild, <laughs> right? It's just everything seems hyper-realistic right now. Yes. We're in, you know, a, a very dark magic realist novel, um, including little facts like, you know, the congressional Republicans on the way to a retreat in West Virginia hitting a garbage truck <laughs> in the train and winding up being stopped close to Charlottesville. I mean, the overruled metaphor could not have been written by a worse writer. I want to stick with religious questions for a little bit, right? So, you know, there are some issues on which there's a vast gulf between left and right, but I feel like actually there may be area for compromise, right? And so one question is a famous question of baking cakes. Mm -hmm. and, and I think one of the things for which I want to fault myself and people on my end of the political spectrum is that I don't think we, we often make the room to listen to the arguments on yeah. the other side. So let me stake the argument the concerns, because I don't know what the right view is, but the concerns from one perspective and have you respond to it. So the concern is that in similar ways in which we've decided collectively for very good reasons in the 60s, that you shouldn't be able to exclude one race of people systematically right. from participation in business and social life, because mm -hmm. if you can't enter certain businesses, you're excluded from social life and economic opportunity and all of those other things. And so that we recognize the importance of freedom of association, but it is superseded um, by the need for people of any race and any creed to be allowed to be full members of society. One of the rights you just don't have as a business owner is to say, sorry, you're black, I don't let you in. Right. right. So now we are overcoming decades and centuries and so on of discrimination of gay people. You can take whatever view morally or religiously you want of whether you approve their relationships or not, but that should not be the subject of legislation, mm -hmm. right? Don't we have a similar obligation to ensure that they get to fully participate in social and business and cultural life? And doesn't that mean that a bakery shouldn't be allowed to discriminate against them when it wants to get the services? So there's two answers to that. Answer number one is, and I've made this argument time and again about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. He was actually not discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. So here's why I say that. If you're an African-American customer and you come in and let's say the, the baker is a wife of a cop or a husband of a cop, you know, and the person says, I would like for you to bake for me a Black Lives Matter cake that celebrates the birthday of Asada Shakur. So Asada Shakur is one of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. And he was a cop killer. It is not discrimination on the basis of race to say to that person, no. Just as if a white person comes in and says to a, a black baker, can you bake me a Confederate flag cake, which precious few people of color are going to ask for Confederate flag cake. <laughs> <laughs> it's generally going to be white people. And the person says, no, people don't say that's discrimination on the basis of race. So Jack Phillips' Masterpiece Cake Shop, he served gay customers all the time. He would have served these gay customers. And when they came in and they asked for a cake, he even offered them a cake that had been pre-made. Okay. So, and he also had a history where he says, if a cake conflicts with my beliefs, and it included things like 
he would refuse to custom design it or use his artistic talent. And so he had a long history of that, like Halloween cakes, you know, cakes that he believed were sacrilegious in some way. He just wouldn't do it. So his belief system is not, I don't serve gay people hmm. or I don't serve black people or anybody else. I happily serve everybody, but I will not use my artistic talent to create a form of expression in service of a belief system that I disagree with. So where would you, I mean, rather than litigating the particular details of that case, mm -hmm. I guess for me, the question is, where do you draw the line, right? So it seems to me from what you're saying that a, a very clear case is, you know, there's a bakery that has pre-baked goods, yeah. right? They're on the counter. A gay couple comes in, you know, um, holding hands. Mm -hmm. They're not allowed to say, no, I'm not going to sell you these pre-baked right. goods. Pre-made, yeah, right, exactly. So if, now, if there's a public accommodation law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, yeah, right, right. And, and you wouldn't, in principle, be against that kind of law. You see why it is that, that there is important okay, reason so you're, to have I, I, you're Now we're going to get into the weeds because right. I'm, I'm, a, so I'm a civil libertarian. I'm a strong believer of freedom of association. I believe that public accommodation law should prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, period, period. And the reason I say that is we have to go back and look at what was a public accommodation law designed to do. So back in common law times, a public accommodation was I'm riding from town A to town B. There's one inn between the two towns. And if I don't get to stay in that inn, I might have to sleep in the open air, you know, get exposure and die. <laughs> so no, we were not going to allow that one inn to close. Well, what happened in the Jim Crow South was an entire region essentially began to systematically deny all access to all kinds of facilities so that an African-American who wanted to get a meal or have a place to lay their head, that was an open question in virtually any community in the South. So that goes directly at the heart and purpose of public accommodation law. That's what it was designed to deal with, was the situation where you're literally denied the opportunity to obtain the good or service you need. What it has morphed into is a laundry list of categories of people that we as a country believe it's morally wrong for you to deny service to. I don't think that's what it's all about. So just to be clear on the nature of your argument, you're not saying that it's unacceptable to discriminate on the basis of race, but it is acceptable to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. You're saying, the illegal, if I'm getting the drift yeah. right, that there's a huge cost to impeding on people's freedom of association in any in any circumstance. The default that is freedom includes, of association. Right. Yes. So, so the default should also be that people should be free to discriminate on the basis of race. But we have learned in our history for because of our unique history, yes. That the effects they are so pernicious mm -hmm. and we have such good reason to assume that unless we have a strong form of intervention, these pernicious effects are in fact going to materialize as they did until the law was passed, then we should make an exception. Right. But when it comes to gay people, presumably, then your next argument would be it's not as clear that the social segregation, just, the exclusion would be uh, would be comparable. And so it doesn't overrule the initial argument. To, but not just gay people. I would say we're really getting to the weeds of civil liberties here. That's but fine. A public accommodation law says you may not, for example, discriminate in the provision of services on the basis of race, sex, gender identity, veteran status religion. I mean, it's a, it's a long creed. It's a long list. And so, you know, I'm a veteran. I think it should be totally fine 
if a pacifist coffee shop owner says, I don't want anyone in my coffee shop who may have blood on their hands of serving the Iraq war, fine. Now, if we had ever reached the point where it was a community so pacifist that I could literally not find a, a hotel to lay my head in or a restaurant to eat in, then I'd say, well, now there's a compelling governmental interest. This is I'm literally being de denied public accommodation broadly. And when you're talking about non-discrimination law, what is it has it morphed into is a public declaration of morality that has legal force. That's what non-discrimination law is morphing into. And the result of that is you begin to have head-on collisions with a lot of other civil liberties. And I don't think that's necessary or prudent. So, for example, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the couple, Jack Phillips didn't custom design a cake. Many, 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 many options for cakes in some of these florist cases. Now, if there was a situation where there was no florist within X number of miles, well, then the government interest may change. But when you're in an environment of options and you have only 19 out of 20 options instead of 20 out of 20, I don't think that that's a compelling argument for overcoming freedom of association. So that's been out of the implications of that. So, mm -hmm. so what you're saying is that you actually think it's fine to discriminate under current circumstances against all kinds of different groups, not just gay people, but also veterans and so on. I'm not using the term fine. I, mean, I would say it's immoral. But it should but be legally law, permissible. But yes, yes exactly. Sorry, I didn't want to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not going totally cool. Today. <laughs> <laughs> right. But even if that situation changed and there was a real public accommodation problem and you would say, yes, actually, in this particular rural area of wherever it is, mm -hmm. uh, New Hampshire, gay people are so discriminated against that they have a real problem systematically accessing services. We should add them to the list of protected classes like African-Americans. Mm -hmm. But even then, you would say there's a distinction between general goods, so the pre-baked goods, mm -hmm. where you walk into the bakery, the goods are already there. Mm -hmm. Under those circumstances, you say, yes, it should be legally impermissible to say, I'm not going to sell you, you know, the pre-baked croissant. Mm -hmm. But if somebody comes in and says, I want a wedding cake that you make especially for me, and that says, you know, dear John and John, mm -hmm. that involves you so much in an expression of affirmation of these particular values that even in those circumstances, you think that shouldn't be compelled. Yeah, so, so I would say this. If you are a person who is engaged in artistic expression or a cre let's say creative expression, and you're a person who's involved in constitutionally protected speech, then the default is the government may not compel your speech, period. So if I'm a lawyer and I'm offering a service to the public, it's pretty much taken for granted that I don't have to argue a case I don't believe in. Right. If I'm a portrait painter, people generally tend to take it for granted that I don't have to paint the portrait of the Grand Wizard of the Klan. You know, these things are taken for granted. I think the Masterpiece Cake Shop case is controversial. What you're about to say is that what's controversial is the nature of cake baking. Is people don't believe that creating a wedding cake is like painting a picture. Right, right. And I would say, People aren't spending four, five, six thousand dollars on a cake because it tastes so great. They're spending four, five, six thousand dollars on a cake in a wedding because of the creation. Very few people go to a wedding and they go, that cake looks like it's going to be the best thing I'll ever put in my mouth. They say that's the most beautiful wedding cake, and it really captures the essence of this couple. 
and that's expression. That's artistic expression. So, so it seems to me, so I want to say one thing that's even further into the weeds and then one thing that hopefully is a let's little bit broader as we, and gets us back to back up for light. The thing that's really in the weeds is the thought about the nature of the artistic expression. And I actually think it really matters whether the, there's something in the cake that affirms the nature of that particular occasion, mm -hmm. right? I mean, even if sort of, you know, cakes are slightly individual in the mm -hmm. way that a, an architect specializing in family homes may be slightly individual, right. right? I mean, you have a discussion about, do you want it to have four layers of three? Do you want it to be, right? That to me does not affirm the nature of that particular event. Now, if it involves a greeting to a particular couple, if it involves even a sort of figurine of two men or two mm -hmm. women or something like that, then I see that it starts to do that. So for me, actually, the line isn't between pre-baked goods and wedding cakes. Mm -hmm. It's between you know, generic wedding cakes, which are somewhat individualized for the occasion in the right. kind of way in which you would respond right. to, you know, do you want vanilla or chocolate? Right. And, do you, right? and, and ones that actually include that expression. Because I, what I agree with is that obviously as a baker, you want to preserve a right not to... The Confederate flag cake. Uh, the Confederate flag cake, yeah. right? Absolutely. And that's that's very obvious that mm -hmm. if you're baking the Confederate flag into the cake, that is an expression, yeah. right? So that's the narrow point. The, the broader point is, you know, we are not in the end going to come to agreement about that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're also not going to come to agreement, by the way, about the public accommodation law, mm -hmm. Where, oh, no, you know, like I think, 19 out of 20 people are not going to agree with me on the right. public accommodation. But, but, but what, I will say this, right, mm -hmm. which is that I think we can both recognize that there's competing interests there, mm -hmm. right? And the naive view of rights in the Constitution is that a right is absolute, but it never is absolute because it always conflicts with other rights. So when one amendment and the other amendment butt up against each other, you have to figure out how to preserve both of them to a maximal extent. Well, I now, think the best way to describe it is there is always a test that is applied to each and every liberty guaranteed in the Constitution. And there is a governmental interest that does exist that can over... So, for example, the strictest scrutiny under the law is a law narrowly tailored to advance a compelling governmental interest using the least restrictive means. If a law can meet that test... It can overcome free speech under almost any circumstance. So, so yes, that's a, that's example of a competing competing interest. Right. So it seems to me like here there are competing interests, mm -hmm. right? And you can recognize that there is a serious problem in people being excluded from businesses, and that there's a danger of that exclusion becoming so systematic that they're seriously impacted. You don't think in the case of gay people in most of the United States that's currently the case, right? So we can disagree about that, but we can both recognize that that actually we have a relatively similar moral framework in a certain kind of way, that we're both operating in good faith. How do we get from the disagreement being so emotionally charged that it makes us think that you're an asshole yeah. and you want gay people to suffer and for them to burn in hell, yeah. right? <laughs> to, to I realize that you're somebody who's a genuine guy mm -hmm. who has thought about the matter in a, in a morally serious way mm -hmm. and comes out on the other side. And, and how do you do that? Not just between you and me. I think we've succeeded in that in, yeah. in this conversation. But how do we do that as a nation? Yeah, so that's a great question. First, let me just say, I think you're really hitting at something very important on the cake case when you talk about what about the nature of the cake itself? Because what was interesting about this cake is the cake the couple ultimately settled on was a rainbow cake. 
hmm. which I think people would say expresses an idea pretty clearly. But it may not have been had they worked with Jack Phillips. I mean, who knows? It's a hypothetical. So on the question about goodwill, the fact of the matter is, in the absence of knowing a human being, it is hard to gauge intent. <laughs> so this is something that I have mentioned many times, and I don't have the quote exactly in front of me. You know, there's that quote from Peter Baelish in Game of Thrones. And he says, I like to play a little game in my mind when I'm eva you know, evaluating the options in front of me. And it is, what is the worst reason for what has happened? And do the events fit the explanation for the worst reason? Hmm. And so let's say you're an LGBT person and you're looking at what Jack Phillips did. What is the worst reason that you can imagine? The worst reason that you can imagine is that he hates me. He doesn't like gay people. He's a bad person. And therefore, that's why he did what he did. Well, do those facts, if you don't know anything about Jack Phillips, could those facts fit within that explanation? On a surface level, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. In the same way that if, say, a Black Lives Matter activist went and wanted to get a cake, and I've never, to be clear, I've never heard of a cake like this, but the cake like I described that celebrates Asada Shakur or whatever, a racist could refuse that hmm. because they're racist. And so what ends up happening is because we presume the worst, it's easy to make facts where someone comes down on the opposite side of our view when we know our own good intention and we know what we want society to be like, and our version of society is pretty virtuous in our mind, it is easy to then immediately lock that into malice. Yeah, yeah. It's really easy. And that goes down to the problem that we have, the, the geographic sorting in our country, mm. where people are increasingly living apart because from Because you those. see he's actually knowing and meeting people of those other views, and so you only see them through the media bubble. Exactly. And it becomes much easier to think, well, they must all be monsters. And then that's exacerbated by the way the cable news debates work. So you might have five minutes of a cable news argument about Masterpiece Cake Shop. And I know I've been in these debates. If you spend the first four minutes expressing that I'm a really good guy, I want what's <laughs> best for you, you know, I, I, you know, I have no ill will towards you at all. I have these religious beliefs that involve eternal, you know, eternal truths and the love of Jesus, and you know, and you get into that, and like I've got nine seconds to talk about the First Amendment, right. and so you end up going, here are my points, boom, 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 and the other side, here are my points, boom, 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 and nothing in that exchange breaks the paradigm that says, I can think of a terrible explanation for why that person is the way they are. And I've started to try to become conscious of this in my own public presentations of things. And I realize how incredibly hard it is to break out of that if you're going to be making an argument in the public square. And I try. I've never figured out a great way to do it, to be honest. I mean, I've done it sometimes better than others. But I'm always aware that I'm speaking both to my friends who desperately want me to be their champion and to my ideological opponents who don't know me, who don't know my ideological allies typically, and are looking at through a prism of, I can think of a terrible reason why he believes this. And that is very difficult to break out of. Very difficult. And I don't have great answers for it, to be honest. So, you know, I think it felt... For parts of this conversation, as though we weren't really talking about Trump and we weren't really talking about populism, but but this has brought it back very nicely and made clear why 
why I want to delve into this and why I did think that it connects back mm. because because this challenge is deep, right? And by yeah. the way, the challenge goes beyond individuals because yeah. the problem is that if you do go on cable news and you are the reasonable person and you do explain where you're coming from in a way that makes people on the other side a little better able to have empathy and to realize mm. that you're not a bad person, you're not going to be invited back on the next time. Yeah. Because you've wasted those four minutes of airtime. Yeah. Those uh, four minutes are precious and some people are going to have switched channels, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... This is also what got us into this mess, right? Because yeah. we have this deep negative partisanship, because we assume the worst about the other side, that is clearly one of the reasons why people weren't able to vote for Hillary Clinton or while they, even if you think it wasn't right to vote for Hillary Clinton, why they ended up voting for Donald Trump. So if what we care about is preserving some kind of common citizenship and preserving a politics in which some people have ruled out of bounds and out of court because they are so toxic, mm -hmm. then we need to have more of that understanding of each other and less of that fear of each other. Yeah. So what can we do? <laughs> I'm asking you know. the easiest question at oh. the end and then... Uh... <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I, I was just talking to somebody the other day and he provided me this brilliant explanation of national polarization, how we got here. Brilliant. <laughs> and, and, then, and then it had a part that says how we can fix it. And I was, I said, I, it just kind of left me cold. That's a chapter 10 problem. Yeah, right? yeah, I mean, Every exactly. good analysis comes to. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So here's all I know. I have a good answer for individuals. I don't have a good answer for the nation, to be honest. The best and shortest answer I have for individuals is make it part of your daily life habit to seek out the best expression of the other side's point of view. So I'll put it like this to people. If you're arguing and you're trying to talk to a progressive about why conservatism is a virtuous ideology, best for human flourishing, et cetera, et cetera, do you say, you know what? If you really want to understand conservatism, go read Breitbart. Or do you say, you know, look, there's a National Review, there's a Weekly Standard, there's Ross Douthat on the New York Times, there's Michael Gerson on the Washington Post, there's Arthur Brooks at AEI, um, I don't agree with everything all of those people say, but collectively, you're talking about the best expression of conservatism. That's what you'll genuinely learn. So if you're a conservative and you're wanting to know about progressivism, is it reading articles that people on your Facebook feed hate posted? Or is it going to the Atlantic? Is it going to uh, the New Yorker? Is it reading some of the really excellent writers who are on Slate? You know, so if you actually affirmatively try to reach out to read the best expression of the other side's point of view, it drains an awful lot of the knee-jerk bitterness and hatred. It just does. I'll give you a good example. There's a writer at Vox who's written a ton about the opioid crisis. Hmm. German Lopez. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's a great writer. And I disagree with him on a ton of stuff. But if there's a development in the opioid crisis, I want to hear what he has to say because he's thought through it at a depth and a level that few other people have. So if you have that view that says, I'm going to seek out the best expression of the other side, not only are you going to understand the other side, you're going to learn a lot of stuff too. So that's the individual solution. Systemically, whew, that gets into everything from Facebook algorithms to the very nature of Twitter itself to the way we run our cable news. Here's one thing about cable news that drives me nuts. People only see the TV appearance. They don't see the green room. And people are much more pleasant in the green room. Hey, John, how are your kids? Oh, it's been forever since I've seen you. How are things going? Oh, I just saw you in MSNBC. You were on fire. And then you get on and you're like, 
John here is unconscionable. He yeah. is the, there's a great story I was told by a friend of mine who does a lot of TV. And he said, he was arguing with a person, I won't use his name because I'm talking a little bit out of school, but I was arguing with a guy. It got very heated. After the cameras went off, he looked at me, winked and said, that was great television, wasn't it? So it's imagine the WWE where everyone thinks is real. Yeah. You know, it's watching the, the wrestling. It's watching Dwayne The Rock Johnson go after John Cena or whatever, except thinking it's real. When the reality is a lot of it is ginned up outrage or a lot of it is just hurriedly trying to get talking points in. And these are just some of the things. So the, the short answer is I've got some ideas. I don't have satisfactory answers. Well, I think if you convince people of one thing today, it's that you are one of those writers who liberals and lefties should seek out to see the thoughtful, earnest version of what an evangelical beliefs and what a conservative beliefs. And we should have you back on to, I'd love to it. evade more. I'd love it. And I would just say, I try. I try. Now, I'm a fallen human being that fails. And there are some things I write that a month later I look back on and go, ah, wouldn't phrase it like that. And there are some things I look back on and I say, no, I think that's... I said exactly what I said, how I wanted to say it. And all I will represent to the audience is I try my best. <laughs> thank you so much, David. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. Infiltrate a troop of cheerleaders and make them spell out the good fight in the middle of the halftime show. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests and comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner, for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.